Hey, it's Junkman and uh, on the line. I have an old friend, a gentleman who's uh, just a very, very talented guitar player and composer, Mr. Mark Bonilla. How you doing, Mark? I'm good. How about everybody else there? Everybody good there at your place? Everybody's awesome. Um, yeah, we got uh, me and Engineer Phil over here just uh, recording the recording what you got brand new release right. out of you uh called celluloid debris yeah. um man this is this is a great collection of work uh you must have been working on it for quite a while um yeah tw- yeah you could say that it was 25 years wow since the last since the last solo album has well, it really been that long debris. it's been that long so yeah debris or um matador yeah American matador came out 23 wow you know so it's just, you know, I'd started a I'd started like two or three of these back, you know, as a follow up to Manador, but I got kind of sidetracked uh with with um I was working at the time with James Newton Howard and and uh got involved heavily in film work, you know, then I got, you know, a lot of T V shows and film work and so and cut to now, uh I figured it was time to put all of those things that I was you know musically i don't know what called sidetrack but just different avenues you know working with keith uh, emerson and uh cta with danny seraphin and writing for symphonies and all this other stuff that i i was i lucked into to doing and figured i would reflect that on this album so it showed that you know if people go where the hell have you been well here's where i've been you know. <laughs> been kind of a busy guy now uh, the yeah. title itself yeah. celluloid debris that tells me one thing it's like it seems like leftover music from film from films or is it just music that you have adapted to films? Tell us a little bit about no, the title it's, it's first. Neither. It, really? Yeah, it's neither. The the debris doesn't mean it was a wasteful thing. What it meant was, in in, and there's there's a lot that goes into this. The album is is got a few slices or layers of onion to it. You know, there's there's segs on this album like there were on Double E Ticket, and those segs are called from a lot of different sources from my childhood. A lot of them. Uh, I had a buddy of mine. I still do. Uh, Jim Gammon, who uh, was blind since birth and was one of these guys that never actually treated his so-called handicap as a handicap. And one of the one of the things that he did was, he, you know, his his hearing got incredibly, um, you know, sharp from from the absence of being have vision. And he was very attuned to sound and attuned to music. He always had the first album when it would come out, you know, he turned me on to more bands. You know, I, I heard my first ELP record there. I heard my first yes record, first blood, sweat and tears, first Maha Vishnu, first miles Davis. I mean, everything was basically, he was the guy. Right. And, uh, I, he also taped everything, taped everything. We would walk around the neighborhood and I was 10 years old. He'd tape it. You know, he, he would always be, so we have archives of, of our lives really. And so a lot of this stuff that's in between the tracks is called from, things that were that were there that I had growing up that then introduced the tracks as they come about. And the rest of it, celluloid obviously mean, meaning film, uh, this was basically a soundtrack of my life for the last 25 years, things ah, that I've okay. gone since I've been. And the debris is just the stuff that just goes around in your head that you think about. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, all of these things. So it's not a it's not like stuff that wound up on the cutting room floor for a film. Uh, hardly. It was just, it, these were all written uh, for the, the sole purpose of expressing a, a part of my life from, from, you know, 93 to 2018 or 2019 rather. Thanks for clarifying. That makes it a lot more interesting that way anyway. <laughs> so this is great. Um, man, it's just, I, I, I've been listening to this thing and just, I'm watching it go for different, different places. Like it goes from, from one kind of frame of mind to the next. And again, yeah, like you said, you're pulling in things from your past. There's a, there's a cover, there's a couple of cover songs on here too, that, that you've redone yeah. and um, from different, different avenues too. Uh, I really like flesh wound first off. It's one of the first tracks that I, that I'd like to be able to play today. If, uh, if I can, if you could tell us uh, our audience a little bit more about flesh wound, that would be awesome. Well, the, what, what we have is, uh, it, it, for me, it was always the comment for this. And I've, I've kind of, in the album, I've, I've, I've put explanations for each song, what I was writing about. Uh, since they're instrumental, a lot of times that's open to interpretation, which is perfectly fine. But uh, this would give you an idea of, of 
where I was coming from that kind of inspired me to write it. Uh, Flesh Wound was written. It's and it's one of the harder songs, if not the hardest song on the on the album, uh, as far as you know, aggression. Maybe that's uh, why I like it, was, it so much. <laughs> could be, could be. Uh, it's uh, it's basically kind of reflecting the the, the times and and that we're in today, which is there's so much uh, that the media uh, propagates. You know, all of this this escalation of violence in our society especially with the uh, the advent of social media where you're starting to see things on YouTube and on and on Facebook that we really shouldn't be seeing right and and, and you know and, and but but the media really leads with this stuff you know they they've, they've become kind of a tabloid uh, exploitation magazine of sorts it's not like you get any kind of straight news from them anymore it's all like it's all to advance their ratings so with all of this in mind, it's, you know, they're, 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 we seem to be oversaturated with it. And therefore, much like a heroin addict where you can't use the same amount to get high, you need something more extreme to get higher or to stay as high as you are. So it's an expanding, constantly expanding universe for selling these visceral experiences, you know, to a population that's already overexposed. So the tune starts out with a, you know, the, the intro to the song is one of the segs. It starts out with a, with a, uh, kind of a, a, a gun fight in a supermarket. You know, at least it's, it's, and people are screaming and all of this. And then, but you hear in the background, uh, who actually was my wife, Joey saying, clean up on aisle seven as oh, if man. this happens every day. And it's, right. it's one of those things where it's just a routine thing now. No one gets excited about it, even though we've just lost two or three people in the, you know, in the uh, yeah. frozen food section. Yeah. That's... So it's, it's, uh, and all of this stuff was cold from, some of the stuff was cold from things in, in my childhood. Not that I was at a supermarket when people got blown away, but it was just, uh, these are collages that kind of set up the next song, you know, and uh, go, the, you know, so that's how, that's how that came about. Now, when did you first start working on this piece? This piece, I, st- I actually started the riff on this, the, the original riff, back after um, American Matador. Huh? I loved the riff of it, and I just kind of left it. I, it was just this cool riff, and then, like I said, I got I got kind of diverted into the soundtrack stuff, and, and two or three of the songs, I believe it was uh, Westwood, Fleshwood, and Prisoners, were all started back in 94, and I, I had gotten kind of an idea and a vibe for it, but I never finished them. And then flash forward now, I went back in and said, okay, I like this riff. Let's, let's fashion an entire song out of this. And so the, that's what I did for, for all three of those songs. Well, let's give it a play, man. I really, again, this is, this is the one that first really just got to me, I guess, again, because you said it's like very aggressive and I really love aggressive music. So well, let's, uh, let's give it a play. Again, it's from the brand new Celluloid Debris record from Mark Bonilla. Um, released, uh, the release date on this is... Is uh, day after tomorrow, July third. Wow! It releases on my website, which will also launch the same day, uh, which is going to be markbaniamusic dot com. So that's M A R C B O N I L L A for all of those guys who don't come from Latin descent. Music dot com. You'll be able to get it on there, and uh, so yeah, Wednesday. It's terrific! Congratulations. Thanks. All right, well, hang on the line there just for a moment. We're gonna play. Uh, we're gonna play "Flesh Wound" from Mark Bonilla from okay. again from said celluloid debris record upcoming in two days, and it's gonna be awesome. So check this out. Crank it up, and uh, we'll be right back with Mark in just a moment. Hold on the line there, my friend. All right, brother. You got it. Here we go. This is celluloid debris and flesh wound.
Oh, man. Brand new from Mark Bonilla. That, my friends, is called Flesh Wound. Nice work. Can Thank you, you. Man, I'm telling you. I certainly... Go for That's it. That's Joe Travers, by the way, on drums. That is our boy Joe Travers on drums. Good. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. I had uh, I, I was in no shortage of A, A-list drummers on this record. So I picked three of the best, and that was Troy Laqueta from Tesla, who's been with me on pretty much every project that I've done. He and I are like brothers. And, and uh, so he was on, uh, he's on uh, some of these uh, tunes, and then Joe's on some of these tunes, and then also Greg Bissonette. Wow. Plays on a couple. No slouches, so. man. And Joe, of course, a member of uh, the, the infamous Dragon uh, Choir. Yes. So. Yes, he certainly was. Yes, now, he was. Is there, it will be again. Are, yeah, I was going to ask you, are you going to be doing any more Dragon Choir? Yeah, um, we want to do some shows. Yeah, we want to do some shows to promote this. And you know, I've been working uh, with him and also been working with Thomas Lang. And, uh, you know, so they're all saying, like, let me know when you're, you you want to do this and, and we're in. So, you know, I'd be very much looking forward to playing with those guys again, you know, and Troy is. Yeah, Troy, well, Troy's a busy guy, too, you know, with Tesla Tour and all the rest of those things. So he's been a busy yeah. guy, especially in the summertime, because that's, uh, that's yep. prime central for touring for for that particular band and others. Um, man, we were talking on the break on, um, you know, you did a lot of work with the late Keith Emerson. You guys were had a band together, uh, a couple of them, actually. I remember interviewing yeah. you with uh, the Three Fates Project. And right. um, there's been some the, a lot of work that... that that you guys did together that I'm sure has come up on this particular record. I'm thinking, um, which track, like the eruption of John minimum, perhaps that you would, that you'd spoke yep. about on some of the that's, notes. That's exactly right. The eruption of John minimum, the, the basic tracks were that were, were myself, uh, Greg Bissonette and, um, Bob Birch, uh, who was also in the dragon choir. And we had done, we had originally laid this song out for the Keith Emerson band featuring Mark Benio record. And, uh, we decided collectively that, uh, you know, uh, Keith had said, you know, I, I love this record. He says, but I think <laughs> it's a bit too aggressive. Do you think for, for, for this, for the record? You know, I said, you know what? I was thinking that same thing too. I love the tune, but I just, I think we ought to maybe, you know, uh, well, let's put it on hold for a while. And he goes, oh, I know. He says, you could do it on your solo record. You know, because that's always what you always say to people like, yeah, I love sure. it. Why don't you do it on your solo record? Exactly. It's so not I for said, this well, band. Do it on your solo. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, maybe I will. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure he's having a good laugh up there now because we actually did. I did put it on my solo record, which uh, it works, you know, and, and uh, it's the only vocal tune on the album. So I had laid the vocals down back back then. You wow. Know, but that was uh, was done in 2007, I think. Now, was uh, it? But then I the rest of the track was finished, you know, just not too long ago, but, uh-huh. um, yeah, it was just always a great track. I always loved it. Um, you know, and having again, Bissonette and Birch back there, the, the Detroit twins, uh, banging that stuff out, uh, was, was not only was it great, but it was, you know, sentimental for me because we lost Bob as well. Uh, you know, a few years ago and he and I were, were extremely close. And so I, I like having a, a bit of him on the album, you know, now, was there a lot of material that were that you were working on with Keith uh, before his uh, before his passing that uh, that may see the light of day besides this particular well, track? Well, we were working on some of that has seen the light of day. Um, there's a new album out called Beyond the Stars, uh, which is only right now released in vinyl, and it just sounds glorious in vinyl. And that, again, that's with Tadie Mickelson, and uh, this was the uh, Saint Martin's uh, or the Academy of Saint Martin's in the Field, uh, right? Uh, did this uh, at Abbey Road, and it's some of Keith's new compositions, uh, like Beyond the Stars and Glorietta Pass. Uh, Ethan, his grandson, is on the album. Rachel Flowers is on the record. Uh, you know, the, the Keith Emerson Band is on the record. Uh, so that just came out not too long ago, and I would urge anyone who loved the Three Face Project to, to pick this up because it's it's a continuation of that and some beautiful stuff and some of the newest stuff from Keith. So, um we'll see what happens in the future. He, he left a lot of things, uh, written on manuscripts. So, you know, at some point, uh, CJ Vanston, me and, uh, Steve Picaro will be going through his files and seeing what might, you know, what we might do. And then we would obviously have to consult the family to see, 
you know, what they're comfortable with and, and what they want to do. So, uh, but that's, that, that could uh, see the, possibly see the light of day as well. Oh, I'm always looking forward to that. He's, uh, he's sorely missed by everybody. I would imagine with his, his, uh, working with him for as long as it did, you got a lot of, a lot of memories about him. Yeah. All great stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I really became a different musician after working with him and after working with Tadier. Uh, which is reflected in this album, as a matter of fact. I mean, that's that was a large part of, you know, growth in that 25 years was the last 10 mm-hmm. or 20 feet, you know, and, and all the different uh, projects that we did and learning how to to really orchestrate. And that's that's the one thing I will say about the guitar, the, the guitar album. It's actually uh, not a guitar album as you would think where you have a lot of chord, your chord progression and a lot of wanking and soloing over the top of it. That's not what this album is. It's heavily, uh, use of, of, of more emphasis on composition and thematic motif done with guitars. And I mean, there's soloing obviously on the album, but it's only done to serve the song, not to serve my ego. Right. You know, I get, I, I get bored very quickly uh, wanking too long on something. I always feel like I'm overstaying my welcome. And the fact that is, is the tune actually benefiting from this or is it just me that's, that thinks it's benefiting because I'm getting into my playing? So I, I really don't go there. Um, I always think about what works for the song and what works for the narrative because all of these songs are, as in any, any song, it's storytelling. And whether you have words or whether you have notes, it's the same rules apply to, to the grammatical structure is still the same. Your notes are the same as your letters, your, your chords, same as your words and your phrases, same as your sentences and your ideas are the same as your paragraphs and you're formulating some kind of a story. And that story has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. It has to have an arc, not just one straight, you know, thing going through. And I find that a lot of the guitar albums tend to do that where they're technically very, very accomplished players. And, but, but I, I find a lot of them are lacking in compositional heft where I'm not, I kind of lose interest after the third song because they're all kind of, yeah, they're, they're all great when it comes to the technical, but I'm not hearing a lot of different stories. And so for me, it's a storybook. Each one of these is a, is a chapter in a story. And, uh, I've used the guitars as, as an orchestra. Uh, like I say, after working with Tadier, he really opened me up to a whole different uh, state of expression as far as the microdynamics and things that really make the humanistic breathing and organic life that music has and is capable of having. And so there's so many guitar parts on here, and I, I have to constantly be giving a, a, a props to Ryan Green, who mixed this uh, album and did all the drums on it as far as you know, ma- uh, uh, mixing them and recording them. And it would have struck fear into the heart of anybody, any other sound mixer would have seen how many guitar tracks were needed for this. Um, at one point, I actually maxed out his Pro Tool system at 165 tracks. Uh, and he said, I've never seen that in any, in any, <laughs> in any no. uh, recording I've done. Is you maxed me out, dude. You know? And I <laughs> said, well, I guess that's some sort of a badge of honor. But the thing is that they're not all playing at the same time. They're all on uh, you know, separate tracks coming in for maybe a split second or three or four bars, maybe as a hybrid of two other or three other instruments, all guitars with different tones. So it makes a hybrid sound just like orchestra where you've got, got, you know, you got, you've got a hundred and, you know, 20 piece orchestra. They're not all playing at the same time. Maybe the triangle player only plays one hit in the song, but that hits perfect where it is. Right. So all of these have been, have been, you know, parceled out to their own individual tracks so that we had, you know, all of the capabilities of making this stuff sound, you know, cohesive and not cluttered, you know, yet all kinds of, there's every guitar tone known to man on this album. And it's because I was trying to emulate the orchestra as far as different things coming in and out. And, and Ryan mixed the hell out of this thing, man. He was just, uh, no one else could have done this. And I, I will always be grateful to him for this. Now, outside of the, you know, obviously it took, 25 years to put all these things together. How about the actual recording and mix down um, time that it took to do this? When did, when, when did you decide that you were ready with this? Uh, a couple years ago, I was getting emails and Facebook notifications and people say, you know, people come up and shows, where's your next record, man? 
well, you know, when are you going to come out? You know, and I, I think I, I asked you that myself. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and uh, so I got tired of having to go, oh, I'll work on something. But it, I, I needed to feel like it was time for me to say something. I'm not just, I, I'm not, have never been one that was financially motivated to just go, okay, well, that one worked. I'm going to put out something exactly the same. Yeah. I, I felt that two albums, I wanted to do something different and find out what I was capable of, you know, stop going around the track in a circle, but actually go out of the stadium and run in a straight line, right. see what the terrain looked like, you know? And so I did that for 25 years, but <clears throat> you know, on about two years ago, I decided, okay, it's time. I've done enough stuff that I think I, I can safely do an album and reflect all of those places and hopefully all the musical growth that I've encountered on the way uh, to, to, to warrant another album. I just didn't want to put out another solo album. I wanted to make, make sure there was a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And so that's so in the last two years is, is kind of when I started in earnest of doing this stuff. And it took a while because I would write, you know, I wrote you know, uh, most of it before I went to Ryan and saying, Hey, I want to, we want to mix all of this. And, and he was so busy and he, he's constantly working on projects and also working with Nickelodeon now as well, that I had to wait for his availability. And that was a lesson in patience because I really wanted to get with it, but I knew that I didn't for one, one, I didn't want anyone else touching this stuff. And two, um, if I wanted it done right, I didn't want to pressure him. I knew that he would call and sure enough, he could say, Hey, I've got some time, you know, Friday and Saturday, man, let's grind on this stuff. And we would do it. We would lay drums down or whatever we would do and piece this stuff together as we went. So, uh, a, a large portion of it was waiting for Ryan to be become available because I didn't want anyone else working on it. Well, you explained it perfectly, <laughs> it's just, you know, and it's funny. Again, while you while you're looking, waiting for a producer, yeah, I really uh, commend you for for knowing the right guy that you wanted to do with, and, and being patient enough to uh, to use strictly him for that. Now, how did the two of you guys hook up initially? Anyway, uh, initially through Troy Laqueda. Okay, and I will I will say something. Troy Troy, our mantra through this whole thing has been something that Troy's father had said to him, which said, "You can't wait long enough for a good thing." And that was kind of our T-shirt that we wore, you know, because it was one of those things where I go, God, I want to get going. He goes, don't worry, man, it'll happen and it's supposed to happen. And he was he was a good grounding factor in that way. Patience, and, my son, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Obi-Wan. Yes. And and so we met back in 2005. Uh, Troy had introduced me to Ryan. Uh, Ryan was working in Scottsdale, where Troy was living. And Troy had found this uh, gentleman named Micah Greiner, who was a great vocalist, and says, you know what, you and, and Mark Benia ought to get together and see what happens and write some stuff. So he, uh, Micah came over, immediately liked him, and we, set, we just started sitting here and we started writing songs. And we, he would just write, you know, whatever lyrics, he would just sing them as we rolled tape. And... Uh, you know, we came up with some great stuff, and then Troy came in with the drums, and and uh, that was the beginning of a band called Seville Row that we and we actually have an album out uh, was out uh, we released it I want to say three years ago, great stuff and it's it was like all, all you know, alternative rock very much kind of in the vein of of like Dishwalla or Soundgarden kind of in that vein, mm -hmm. and Ryan Ryan Green recorded the album we 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 went to Scotts Scottsdale Arizona and we're there living at Troy's house like a band you know, sleeping on that studio floor, sure. like, like the old days. Right. And that's how we did. We were all in that, in the house together and creating this record. And, uh, then after that, I just, I, I saw how wonderful Ryan's, you know, how great of, of a temperament that he had and how great his ears were, you know, as far as production wise. So I brought him in on a couple of different things. One of them was the three Fates project. He came in to do the LA, uh, portion of that with all the band stuff. Uh, and he was here with Arne Oxelberg from Abbey road, who was doing the orchestral part of it. And they worked together beautifully as, as you know, I knew that they would. And I also had Ryan on a couple of other projects. I did the theme for uh, Larry Wilmore's the nightly show. I did that theme for that show. And I had Ryan mix that. And, you know, so we've, we've, we've traded projects back and forth, but I, I you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, how a director will always work with the same composer usually, or, you know, I like the same lead actor because they know what they're getting. They know right. that, that they always, it will always result in a good product. 
and and something that you okay, I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about that aspect of it, whatever that happens to be. And with Ryan, I don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> I know that it'll and and he's he's a he's just a incredibly tireless worker. And I mean, I don't know how he does it. Um, so it's, uh, yeah. So th- that's why we, you know, after that first project, we all just fell in love with each other. We're like, man, let's do some more stuff. And and we have, you know, and, and I'm sure that we'll continue to do so in the future. So the back of the t-shirt said worth waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, it has been. I yeah. mean, I, look, I've, the, the, the response that I've been getting is the one I would hope I would have gotten, you know, for all this hard work, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and it's right. It's, it's not just me. It's everybody else that contributed to this, you know, in so many ways are, are shining through it as well. You know, and, and that's what I'm most proud of is, is my friends that, that, that volunteered. I would love to come in. Steve Carl, can I play piano on this? I would love for you to play and Philip Seiss and, and my buddy, Jim Gammon, you know, my blind, blind friend from the past is playing trumpet on, on sailor. You know, so uh, it's like I've got, it's like a family reunion of sorts. You know, that's and, terrific. And uh, you know, and that's it comes across. It really does. All the goodwill comes across on these tracks. I think. And I love that. I love that it goes all over the place in terms of, of tempos and direction and and things like that. So, yep. and uh, with that in mind, you know, I'm going to let you pick out another pick out another track of your choice and explain why and uh, what it's all about out of it. Uh, tell me. Well, tell me another one to play. Well. Let's uh, let's pick. A, since you mentioned it, let's pick uh, the, the eruption of John Minimum. There's a uh, there's well, two let's, parts. Let's, there's two parts to that. There's two parts. Yes. That's... Let's 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 save part one for for those people that that uh, you know will will be happily surprised by the the personnel on it. And let's let's pick part two. It that happens to be my son's favorite part. And what this is, by the way, I'll just kind of uh, uh, set it up is the eruption of John Minimum was a title that I had dreamed. I, you know, I woke up one, one morning, it sounds like a blues lyric. Sure. And, uh, I, I, uh, was what the, what's the eruption of John? What the hell? I wrote it down because I thought it was interesting. And I thought, well, I'll figure that out later, what it means. And, and it, it, it seemed to me that it was, it was basically the story of the, of the guy that lives down the street that never, uh, that no one ever notices, uh, you know, they, they keep to themselves, don't really have any friends. They're not mean, but they're just even. And, and one day you find out that they've snapped and they've walked into a, a mall or they've walked into a synagogue and they've opened fire and, and people think we never saw it coming. You know, they're, 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 he was always, you know, he was a, a loner. A <laughs> yes, yes, and you you wonder how they get to be that way, or what is it? What's the straw that breaks that back? You know, and and what it is, and and so John Minimum being the word Minimum being the small guy, the little guy, and obviously the eruption is obvious, you know, and so the first part, part one is vocal, and it and in the lyrics it kind of explains of you know him going and and the seg by the way that follow, that precedes that also leads into this with the the sermon that the that the preacher is giving on the uh, on the radio as he's loading his gun in the car and then the second part is the actual event itself and all of these things that would be going on in in someone's mind during the unfolding of the last hours or minutes sometimes of his life and so the the second part is very very dark but it has moments of euphoria in it and because the the mind has got to be divided into all these different shards uh, that you you know personality uh, conflicts and and morals and and ethics and and then not giving you know not caring uh, afterwards until the ultimate abrupt end that that comes and so this song part two the eruption of John Minimum is what this is about. Well, there's a lot going on in there. I can understand now why Keith Emerson said save it for the solo record because there's <laughs> an awful lot of lot of well, information on there. This, part, this second part was written was one of the newer things. He hadn't. It was first part one that he said to save. Part two, he would have definitely said that. No, he would have probably loved it. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. he would have probably go. That goes on my solo album, right? You know? So. Yeah. Now you mentioned this was, this was your son's favorite. Now, why this particular movement of the song is your son's favorite? Well, I think because it has so many jagged edges to it. It really piques his curiosity. Uh-huh. Um, he's he's into a lot of very eclectic stuff. This this kid, he's eighteen now, 
And, you know, for one, he grew up with Keith. Keith was, would give him piano lessons. Wow. And, you know, and he, he didn't know who he was. He just thought he was just saw him as Uncle Keith, right? Yeah. He had no history. Right. And he'd be sitting at the piano and Keith would, he would show him what he, Keith, you know, he would show Keith what he was learning. And he says, Oh, well, try doing this. And he said, and he actually taught him prelude to a hope when he was seven. Wow. And, and, you know, and then he's playing away, you know, Keith starts to bang away. And then and Nate comes up to me, he's like, you know, and he says, daddy, and he goes, yeah. And he points to Keith and he goes, he's good. You know? And I went, yeah, <laughs> he should he do is. something. <laughs> like, I had no idea. He's a, you know, and, and so he, he grew up with that innocence of just thinking of him as, as uncle Keith and not, not knowing what his, what his history was till later, you know? And so I think because of that, he grew up with, with all of these interesting people coming through the house. Sure. None of them too introverted and was open to soundtracks. I mean, his, his favorite music to listen to is, is soundtracks from films. That's what he does. He doesn't listen to, you know, the top 40 never has. He's always listened to stuff that, that has been a little bit deeper. I, I, you know, prog stuff and, and, and like I said, soundtrack stuff. And so when things become angular and interesting and, and the textures are abrasive and then they, 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 they soften up into something completely different. I think it just piques his curiosity. And, and I mean, you, you'd probably have to ask him, uh, he could probably, uh, explain it a lot more eloquently than I could, you know, now, as far as why he liked it. Now, did he have a lot of fun with Uncle Keith's Moog synthesizer and all the all the plugs oh, yeah. and well, wires had, coming out of that? <laughs> yes. Well, when he was when he was like two, you know, one and two, he would come in and re repatch my patch bay, you know, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I'd come in and go, "Why is there keyboards coming through my guitar rig?" You know, <laughs> he was playing telephone <laughs> operator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be in there doing. It. And so when when Keith's Moog was over here for a summer, you know, that was like, oh man, that's like a you know, has a dude. You yeah. cannot pull these out. These have been in here since 1971. Okay? Right. You can't, you can't mess with this. You know, I, I showed him a couple of knobs that he could press and he could, you know, so he had learned about sample and hold and LFO and all that. And Keith was fine with it. He was cool. He trusted us over here, you know, That's good. and, uh, so he was able to play with the, you know, with the one that's now in the, you know, he's, it's in the, wherever it is now, it's on display somewhere back, yeah, back it was in a, Chicago. Yeah, was it, it was actually in a museum in uh, in New York, too, for a while, wasn't it? They in New York, yes. Yeah, they did a great big, at the Met, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, you know, somebody said, hey, look at this. And I said, oh, yeah, I had one, I had one just like it in my bedroom, wow. you know. My son, but, my son loves it. Yeah, yeah he, he dug it, so it was cool for him. You know, he's had a pretty, pretty eclectic childhood. You know? Well, let's crank up his favorite song on the record. This is called "The Eruption sure. of John Minimum, Part 2. It's brand new from Mark Bonilla from uh, Celluloid Debris, brand new record, which comes out in two days. Again, you can find it on his website, and uh, we'll be back with uh, with Mark in just a moment. Let's give it a spin here. Hang on the line again, once again, Mark. We're going to put you on hold. And- All right. Let the people uh, groove on some of your tunes here. Again, crank this one up. You're going to love it.
brand new from uh, Mark Bonilla right there from Celluloid Debris. That's the eruption of John Minimum Part Two. Again, nice ballad. Yeah, the ballad part. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, just, man, I'm telling you, it's it, this record. As I as I said a bunch of times, it goes in so many different directions. That's why I love it because you know there's nothing worse when you're listening to something that's brand new and it's as you said. I don't want to listen to the same guitar record over and over again, where it's just riff after riff after riff after riff, after riff and it never goes anywhere. It's like watching a film or reading a book, and it never has any kind of a plot or anything. It's just content. Yeah. This is just, well, you know it's, a, it's brilliant. You know, it was a great record for me growing up. It was a really, uh, I was a huge Edgar and Johnny Winter fan, you know, massive, and Rick Derringer. Mm-hmm. And Rick Derringer, Rick Derringer released an album in 70, I want to say 73, called All-American Boy. Right. That had Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo on it, and then a slew of these other tunes that were all songs. But each song had a different type of a guitar in it. One would have a pedal steel, one would have a dobro, one would, you know, be acoustic, all different types of tones and everything and feels on. I remember going at the time going, now this is a guitar album, man. This, every song is different. And, 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 and I remember never getting tired of listening to it because it was constantly like going to a smorgasbord and going, okay, now I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to go to the Spanish section, have this, I'm going to the Irish section, have this, you know? And uh, to me, I don't I don't write stuff to throw it away. In other words, when guys go in and say, well, we're going to get 25 songs and we'll pick the best. No, that's not how this works because the writing doesn't, and I this probably will explain it, the writing doesn't come from me. It, 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 it goes through me somehow. And I think if any writer would be honest with themselves, it would be the same thing, it would be the same claim. You don't have anything to do with this stuff if you're channeling it. You may have to be able to keep your car tuned up. So whoever wants to come in and drive it, can it'll respond to them. And by that, I mean your scales, your, you know, your musical knowledge of stuff, you know, your technique and your facility. But when, when I write this stuff, I don't, I, I, I'm not aware that I'm writing. I'm not, it's not any conscious thing. I just start playing and it's like, Oh, that's cool. I like that. You know, and, and you're basically kind of leaving your channel open for, whatever wants to, whoever your muses are, if you want to call them that, coming through and creating through you. Otherwise, if you start to think that this stuff comes from you, you're in trouble because it's like going into them, going into the the desert with a canteen. It's going to run out at some point. But if you think of it as a river that runs next to the desert, all you got to go over there and just dip your cup in, it'll always be there. And I've never, I've never had writer's block on any of the TV shows I've ever done any of the films I've ever done, anything, I've always come up with something because I know that it is, it's not me. It's not up to me. It's just up to me, you know, kind of like ringing the fire alarm for the fire alarm guys or for the firemen to come down the pole. Okay. Where's the fire? Oh, it's over here on the keyboard. Okay. We're going to go over there and do something. So, and I think if a lot of, a lot of players are like that, it should be like that too, that, that you need to give it up, man. You need to give it up and not be so conscious of you, of yourself on the stage. And really, I mean, you you look at Hendrix on in Woodstock doing this, the Star, Star Spangled Band, you have the split screen where you have him on the left blazing away with his fingers. And on the right, it's just him kind of with his head back, you know, and his eyes shut. He isn't anywhere on that stage. He's gone. He's, he's vacated the building. And there's somebody else coming through him. Mm-hmm. And that's how that. You know, and, and so I don't take credit for any of this stuff, really. I mean, I'm, I love the fact that, that people will like it, but I, I really have to hand the props to whoever's coming, coming through and channeling this stuff. Uh, It doesn't, you know, so it keeps me rather grounded that way because I don't really start to, to, you know, think of myself as anything more than a servant to the music. And that's really what we all should be when we do songs is, is where we all serve the song, the, the vocalist, the, the, the writer, the, the drummer, everybody. And once you start serving yourself, it's pretty obvious. And that's usually when the album starts to become mundane. Hmm. But if you're serving the song and serving the composition and serving the story, you're a, you're a viable character in the story that makes, you know, there's a reason that you're in there. Then it, the, the, the song or the story can't help but be a success. Well, you are very possessed with, uh, with the influences and uh, everything that came through on this, I really uh, I applaud you on yeah. this on this whole project. Yeah. It's great. Um, you were telling me about another project that you that you were writing, uh, talking about a uh, a new guitar instruction book 
that's different than a lot of the other ones. Uh, talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, it, it also comes out. I decided to just open the Bombay doors and let everything fly on July 3rd, you know. So <laughs> you are the king uh, of the metaphor. I love your metaphors. Well, <laughs> They're awesome, by the way. I just got to well, let you know. Well, there's a shitload of them in this book. Yeah. I, the, the, Mike Prescott, who edited this, says, you're the king of the metaphor. I swear to God, I've never seen anybody use so many analogies. Like, well, They're good ones. But that's how, that's how you teach stuff, sure. you know. It's like so... Have to, you have to pull something tangible that people can go, oh, I can relate to, yeah, exactly. to, to shoveling shit down the street in a wheelbarrow. Now I get it, you know, whatever <laughs> it might be. So it's, you know, you have to, you have to find a way to get into the house, man. If you have to go up the stairs and through a back window, do it that way. It's all right. Both my but parents, yeah, books, both my my parents were teachers, so I definitely get well, then, that. Then they, <laughs> they know, they know, yeah, and, yeah. and it's the joy of being able to get into a house that no one's been able to get into before, sure, and sure. have a light switch on. And I go, okay, that's good, you know. So, so also yeah. on July third, you have a new book coming out. So tell us a little bit yeah, about that. Well, it's called Balance of Power, and it's it's strategies and insights for guitar. And what I've done, the idea had been in my brain for for a number of years to write like a definitive book on the staple knowledge of guitar playing, you know, where, where that, that, that every seasoned player knows, but that usually you don't get from a book, you get it from street knowledge, you get it from gigs, you get it from playing with other people, you get it from bands that you were in, you get it from bad experiences that just went to hell, you know, everything it's, that's where we really learn our craft. I mean, when you go, when you take your driving test and you get your license. How good of a driver are you when you walk out of the DMV? Not very good, but if, you, if you're if you on the road for 25 years or whatever, you know, a, a period of time, any given period of time, you start to realize that, hey, man, these guys are running red lights. These guys are turning left where they shouldn't be. These guys are going. You start really understanding how people drive like idiots, and then you're a much better driver. It's the same thing with this. And as much as I've tried to encapsulate in the book the, just the knowledge that, that, at least from my standpoint, that you need to sound great, to sound like anything you ever wanted to sound like. You can do it, and you can do it by simply really cleaning out your closet. There's so many books that have 100,001 chords and a million scales and all this stuff. It's like, you know, you just, it's too much stuff in the closet that you're never going to need, but you're going to have to go around to get to the, the shirt that you really do want to wear. So what I've done is it's, it's about 132 pages and, and it goes through, you know, it goes to music theory. It starts with music theory, but only the theory that you need, not the other stuff. And, 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 and it all relates to the guitar. And even though the theory could relate to other instruments, it goes through the building chords and, and the function of chords and done taking away all the mystery. Cause when I teach and I do teach, my students, when I, when I show them this stuff, they go, God, I thought it was harder than that. I went, yeah, yeah you're supposed to think it's harder than that because the word theory. It's not, it's not, it's not Einstein, man. This is basic math. And there's a way to look at it where it makes total sense and that applies to the guitar very efficiently. So I go through all of that. I go through the blues progression, uh, different chords, uh, substitute chords, all the stuff that you'd learn in jazz that, that is not that difficult to play. And but you sound, you say, it sounds difficult when you do it. That's what the interesting thing is. And at the end of the book, I kind of get into a section where I know it isn't in these other books. And that is the theory of where this stuff comes from. Like I was talking about channeling, uh, tools of expression, you know, uh, playing in, in bands, like what to do in a band, what to do, you know, I mean, how to, how to conduct yourself in a particular band so that you get asked back, you know, different things, uh, just things that, that were kind of, I had to learn the hard way, a lot of it. And I decided why I kind of wanted to spare the other, the players from having to go through that and try to save them a time so they could jump a little bit in their progress. I mean, we we all have to put in the time and the flight hours, but this kind of gives us a a direction of, of what to look for and what to look for as far as feeling, uh, you know, how I'm supposed to feel about this stuff when, when I am channeling what it feels like. And I've also given a list in the back there of 50, classic songs, guitar songs from different artists, from Jeff Beck to, to Jan Ackerman to, to Steve Howe, uh, that are available on my, that will be available on the website under, under links that have all the songs in order. And in the book here, it has like what to listen for, what, what these songs are perfect examples of, you know, and they're, 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 they're all discussed in the book, but they're also discussed in the list of the suggested listening. So it's a, it's, it's basically, if you have this book, I don't, I really don't think you'd need another one. It's, it's at least 
again, this is going to be from my standpoint and every guitarist, every teacher that's ever put out a book is going to be from their own, their own standpoint. But I know that this is the stuff that's worked for me and it's, it's, it's streamlined. There's no fad anywhere. It's all prime filet. That's why it took so long to write it just to make sure that I wasn't being redundant with anything. So, and that's what we've got. Now, would this be geared to a more seasoned or advanced guitar player or somebody that's just kind of starting out or somebody that's well, not I really think, sure which direction that they want to go? Well, I think it, 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 you both could use it. I mean, I've got on here intermediate to advanced because okay. it really does start to get, you know, into the real nuts and bolts of playing, you know, uh, within like the, the fourth or fifth chapter, uh, you know, but, but, but someone that, that knows the guitar already isn't going to have an issue with it. Cause I've tried very, very hard using metaphors to, uh, try to be very, very plain and, and, and taking great pains and making sure that, that a lot of times you put stuff to print. Uh, if you miss a word here or there, or you, or one word could refer to two different things, uh, the, the reader could take it wrong. I've tried very hard not to be unclear about anything to make sure that, that, it, that it's all explained, you know, and everybody has a firm foundation. But, but beginning guitar players will, will, I think, benefit from the first few chapters of it just because it's theory. But it's theory that's, that's beginning theory that gets a little bit more involved. But if you do it chapter by chapter, it, it grows. It's, it's done in a, log, a logarithmic way of, 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 of learning. So we start simple. And then we get more involved as we go along. So it's 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 a progressive book as it goes through. It's not just it doesn't just start with a with a train running at sixty miles an hour. Wow! And again, the title is called Balance of Power. It'll be available on the on the website as well. And the website so, again? That would be markbeniamusic dot com. And all this will be available coming up on July third. Uh, yep. Hope, uh, you all take advantage of this. And again, the record Celluloid Debris, also available July 3rd on said website. And soon, I'm sure, every place else that fine music is sold, um, you know, <laughs> you'll yeah. find it. Yeah, it will. I just don't want to give Amazon 30 to 40% right off the bat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for doing nothing. You know, I'm, I'm tired of record labels. I had two or three other record labels that wanted to release this. And I said, you know what? Sorry, I'm going to release it myself. You guys, you know. It just—it's different. The business is different now. You Absolutely, know? it used to be the companies where where you'd record this stuff, where you would it would distribute this stuff. We don't need that now. Nope. You know, so it's it's, it's not necessary. They become kind of a of an ex, uh, an extra expenditure that we really don't need. Nope. Well, Mark, I'm telling you, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I mean, every time every time I've ever spoken to you, I come away a better person. So just know that. Well, thank you. Bless you for that. That was a nice thing to say. <laughs> sure. Um, another track that that we can, that we can play and let our uh, let our listeners' uh, minds well, run free. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do let's do something a little less aggressive than the last one. Okay. Um, this was a tune. Uh, this is called "Our Winter Love." It's the last track on the on the album. And there, there are three covers that I did on the record. Uh, Four and Twenties uh, by Stephen Stills, a uh, rather different version of that. Uh, Sailor yeah. was uh, written by Kevin Godley and Lil Cream from 10CC, was on the album Consequences. And then this one, which was uh, the, the version I fell in love with, was by Bill Purcell back in, in the 1960s. And my brother Tom and I, you know, we had a very small bedroom in Walnut Creek where we grew up. And, you know, we would hang out in there and listen to that transistor radio. And this is one of the songs that we both just couldn't get enough of. And it was a beautiful ballad. And the thing that I want to do then, the thing that you do with cover tunes, and this is something, actually, I, I cover this in the book as well, that when you do a cover song, you have to have a reason to redo it. There's no reason to do it the same exact way. It, it, it's already been done that way and, and probably going to be better than the way you do it. But you have to find a way that, that it's your personality that comes through the song. And to find a, to shine a light on the song in a different way so that people see the beauty of it as you saw it. And, and on Our Winter Love, that's what I did here. I, I, you know, the song, you would hear the original song and you would have an emotional reaction to it. And then you would hear the, the version that I did and you would have a different emotional reaction to it because mine is simply the way that I felt when I heard that song. So I was trying to translate my emotional re reaction to it 
as opposed to the initial song and the and the, the organic reaction that you would have of that song, which everybody is different. Um, whenever you hear any song, it's subjective. You'll have a different reaction to it than, than I will to than, than my mom would. So this is simply a uh, kind of a translation of my reaction to it. And my when I listen to it, the nostalgia that it, it brings back and, you know, the, 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 the sanctuary of music. And that that's what this song is all about. Well, I noticed on the notes, too, that your brother Tom is actually on this particular recording as well. I had to have him on it because sure. this was part of the way I had him play percussion on it. You know, I can't, he came up and, and, uh, you know, and I have, I have childhood friends on the album, Jim Gammon, you know, is yeah. on the album, like I say, so I have, it's like a family reunion of sorts. It really is. And, and so, you know, that it's the whole reason for all this. So we all, we were all born from this. My, my family was very musical growing up. My brother's a drummer. And I looked up to him and my whole family played music, you know, just not professionally, but would, would sit around in neighborhood jam sessions. We'd have uh, Mickey Riley and Josie Riley come over from, from across the street who played piano, accordion, and clarinet. You know, uh, Kathy Gammon came over and played violin. Jim played trumpet. You know, my family played what they did. And so it was just, I, I learned at a very young age the enjoyment of just playing music. It didn't have to be good. As a matter of fact, when it was shitty, it was funny. You know, and it would, we, would get, we would get enjoyment out of all the clam bakes that would happen, you know. But um, I learned very, very young that, that music was enjoyable. And, and I, I still, to this day, remember the feeling I had doing that stuff. And this is, this, this song is, is reminiscent of that. It's, it's that feeling that I got, uh, you know, in my youth, in my youth, in my early days, listening to this, as a matter of fact, that the tune starts with my, my, uh, little, um, uh, RCA Victor 45 record player that you were, you'd stack the records, you yeah, know, yeah, and then yeah. they go, you know, the, the, the worst thing for, for records. And I think the record companies knew that because you'd be back to buy another yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. You have you to know? buy more and, of them, yeah. And, and so you hear that at the beginning of this, you'll hear the platter hit the ground and then the needle come over and start the, the, the stat. You know, you hear the vinyl clicks and pops uh, that, that will always make us feel warm and fuzzy. Absolutely. You know, that, that vinyl. And then, you know, I started out with a little small uh, mono you know, a uh, version of the actual songs theme done. And then all of a sudden this thunder hits and it opens up into modern day. And then it's my, my nostalgic look back at my brother and I being in that room wow. all those years ago. Well, we're going to give it a, a, a go right now. Again, my thanks to you for, for calling in and, and uh, talking with us here. And I uh, look my forward pleasure. to it again. It's celluloid debris. Hang on the line there just for a moment there, Mark. And here we go. It's brand new. It's called Our Winter Love from Celluloid Debris. Brand new from Mark Bonilla. Listen to this and love it.
Outstanding. Brand new from Mark Bonilla. And that one is called Our Winter Love. From his brand new record, Celluloid Debris. My thanks to Mark for calling in and uh, telling us all about the record. Again, it'll be out on July 3rd. Along with his guitar instruction book and everything that else Mark Bonilla related. And uh, you can look at markboniamusic.com for further information. Again, this is Junk Band on Junk Band Radio and VintageRock.com. <laughs> 